This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The podcast you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, or anyone else. If you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media, stop listening now. If you're interested in thinking differently or learning something, turn up the volume on your computer, smartphone, or mobile device. This is The Racket Report. Here's Frank Morano. Welcome to The Racket Report, the podcast that tries to take you inside the world of organized crime from perspective like you rarely hear. On this program, we've had attorneys, we've had law enforcement officials, we have had people that have become informants, we have had journalists, we have had people that have checked a number of those boxes. Well, I'm very excited about uh, the guest that we have today because not only has he been an eyewitness to some of the most noteworthy events in the history of 20th century mafiadom, but unlike a lot of other people who've chosen to become informants or rats, as their detractors might call them, he has walked a very dangerous line, some might say, in that he's not a rat. But he's definitely not really in the mob anymore, or at least not involved with the mob. We'll explore it with Frank DiMatteo, a former mafia associate and author of The President Street Boys, Growing Up Mafia. And these days, he's the publisher of Mob Candy Magazine. Frank, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Frank. So paint the picture before we get into what the mob was like um, in your upbringing and what the mob might be like today. Paint the picture of Brooklyn. Uh, President Street, I've been there many times. It's a, it's a street that has changed a great deal. And in Brooklyn in those days, when you were growing up, it seems like the waterfront and the shores were not only a, a vibrant part of Brooklyn's economy and Red Hook's economy, but a big part of the mafia's business in those days. Describe what Red Hook and Brooklyn in general was like in those days when you were growing up. Okay, well, I was born on first place in, in downtown on Court Street in the middle 50s. Uh, my grandfather was a longshoreman. Um, my father's father was a longshoreman, which is a grandfather on the other side. Uh, it was a tight neighborhood. It was 90% Italian. Um, all the stores were local uh, people who ran them, owned them. Uh, a lot of clubs, a lot of bars. Uh, the boys had, uh, every other, every other block. It was either a club either with some family that ran it. Uh, it was really mixed. It wasn't just one-sided, like just the Cambinos or the Gallos or the Pafachis. Uh, they were all mixed. So you can go any other block and there was a, a crew for a family there. They all got along at the time. Uh, food was good. You know, uh, we be out, we'll be out all night. You know, too late as kids, and wasn't we didn't fear nothing. Everybody was watching us. You know, it was a very, very tight neighborhood at the time. Uh, and you know, you knew there was wise guys everywhere. You know, if you did something wrong, you get a kick in your, you know, butt from them. You, you got to watch your p's and q's. Uh, I grew up. You know, my father was a bodyguard for uh, uh, Larry, so you know, uh, I experienced from a young age being around these guys and, and, and most of the guys lived in the neighborhood. So, uh, everywhere you turned, uh, Red Hook, Carroll Street, you know, uh, Carroll Gardens, which is now was really, really hooked up and everything stemmed off the waterfront. You know, uh, everybody's grandfather or uncle or someone worked, uh, for the, uh, longshoremen, uh, union. So uh, you see a lot of hooks and a lot of guys uh, walking around at the uh, end of the day. So uh, it was very common. Uh, it was a very tight neighborhood. 
you know, uh, like I said, it was probably 90% uh, Italian, another 10% Spanish, Spanish uh, a few Irish, you know, never, uh, not many. But uh, you know, like I said, I grew up with my grandparents young as a young boy. I still a lot with them. Um, born and raised in the neighborhood there until I was, uh, you know, mid 30 years old. The time I even left the block, <laughs> so mm. uh, it, it was just a great neighborhood. I mean, uh, you know, until you know everything changed, money changes, people leave, people want better places. You know, every, every, sure, it's always you know the the grass is always greener on the other side. So a lot of people moved out, you know, to bigger yards and you know uh, stuff like that. Well, so, yeah, I see and, that. I grew up in Staten Island. Everyone I grew right. up with was from Brooklyn, so uh, right. I totally empathize. And all the people that I grew up with in Staten Island, they now live in Jersey. So I totally, right. I totally get the migratory pattern of uh, a lot of ethnic families in the uh, Northeast the at bridge. that time. The bridge, the bridge was a ruination uh, of of the Italian family downtown. You know, it used to be everyone lived in the neighborhood, so you would have your aunts and uncles, cousins. Your grandparents, you know, you yourself, your mother and father, getting together on on Sundays mm-hmm. to eat at someone's house because we lived in a in a thirty block area. So, but once that bridge opened up, it changed, you know, slowly but changed. So, I always blame the 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 on a bridge, but it was just time to people to move on. Now, it uh, makes sense uh, as far as the mafia goes or organized crime in general. You had some exposure to some some mafia activity in your own family, right? What was your family's level of mafiadom? My father was a bodyguard. Came up. My father came up with uh, Tony Bender in in, in fifty nine. Uh, as a bouncer for him at the wagon wheel, uh, uh, Joey Gallo and Larry Gallup was uh, in the city uh, trying to get Tony Bender to help him out, help them out because they having a, they were having a beef with uh, Joe Pafacci, and they were just trying to get the captains together to try to get some support. My father was a bouncer at the uh, wagon wheel under Bender, and uh, Joey and Larry was there. My father wound up getting into a fight with. Uh, a black guy that was talking to a white girl at the time in the place. My father wound up knocking him out in two punches, and the guy wound up being uh, Emil Griffith, uh, middleweight champion. Wow! Wow! Yeah. So in two punches. So what my when Larry and Joey saw that, and they were always looking for bodies to you know, for more muscles. So they wanted to Bender and, told, and asked Tony Bender if they could bring Ricky, Ricky to Brooklyn. Bender says you can take him. He's from Brooklyn anyway. And uh, Larry went over to my father and said, uh, "We can use you in Brooklyn." And and uh, my father wound up uh, um, being Larry's bodyguard for uh, I think it was about seven eight years wow. until Larry died of cancer. And then from there, you know, so when I was a little kid, you know, Larry and Joey Gallo were uncles to me. They used to come and pinch my cheeks until I cried. That was the thing to do. That was just shot, you know they show affection that way. So uh, that's what I've you know, grew up with, you know, you know, uh, after Larry died, my father wound up being, uh, uh Albert Gallo's bodyguard until, uh, like 76. And, you know, so when I was old enough, I was, uh, elected to drive. So it starts with driving, man. So I was driving everybody everywhere and, you know, going on the errands, being the flunky. And that's how I started. And then they, they put me with the uh, Royal musical, which is uh, one of the guys from uh, in the Gallo crew had a club on President Street. There was a couple of clubs, but all the young guys would go with Roy Roy Musico. He was the he would he's a mentor for the young guys. You couldn't go in the big boys club because that was Albert's club, and and the older guys were in there. So the young guys stood across the street at Roy Roy's. Albert so, Albert Kid Blast is still around these yeah. days, right? Yeah, I think he's going to be 93 this year. Amazing. Uh, they say uh, that, uh, we'll, we'll talk about the Gallows in a minute, but uh, they say he's the oldest active wise guy still on the street. I I had read that, uh, I think it might have been in the New York Post, but I, honestly, you read so much, I don't remember where, that you saw your first murder at six years old. Is that true? Describe what you remember for us. Yeah, I was on. Uh, I was coming out of an apartment with my mother on Fourth Avenue and Union Street, her, her friend of her's apartment, and across the street was a diner of Fourth Avenue and Union. And one of my father's friends, a couple of my father's friends, were standing on the corner, 
And an argument broke out while me and my mother was coming out of the uh, apartment. We were waiting for a bus and we were going downtown. And what happened was uh, they got into an argument and uh, one of them wound up getting shot. So they, they killed the – one of the guys got killed in front of me about 50 feet away. So my mother just wished me off and, you know – like I said, everybody, it, it wasn't, it was like Cowboys and Indians at the time. So mm-hmm. it wasn't that, you know, I wasn't that, tra- you know, tra- big trauma. And you didn't, need, you like didn't need therapy was, or anything afterwards. Not you, at you, all. You it, was, it was Cowboy Indian stuff. It wasn't bloody. It wasn't, you know, like on TV, you know, you're 50 feet away. It was pop, pop. The guy went down, you know, and then it was Joe Maggs that got killed. At the time, I knew him, but I knew him as a little boy. It's not I know, sure. you know, like in right. home. Right, you're you know, not. It's yeah. Joey, you know what I mean? Uh, and, he got, and, he, and he got killed in front of us. Uh, and that was the first time I saw somebody get killed. It wasn't that uh, trauma, traumatizing. Uh, you mentioned the Gallows a couple of times. I think the, the best known out of the uh, the Gallo brothers is uh, Crazy Joe Gallo. Joe Gallo, who, whose nickname was Crazy Joe Gallo. His, right. um, he's been depicted in a whole bunch of movies over the years. His murder has been depicted in a whole bunch of high-profile uh, movies, including most recently uh, The Irishman. He's one of these guys that was one of the most talked about up-and-coming young gangsters of the 19th 70s. A lot of people remember that firsthand and followed it as it was happening. But for a lot of people listening to this podcast, this is kind of history for them. And you're an eyewitness to history. For people that may fall in the latter category or whose recollection of Joe Gallo beyond being a baseball player for the Yankees might be a little hazy. Who exactly were, were the Gallos and specifically who was Joe Gallo? Well, Joe Gallo was a old school gangster. His mentality was gangster. And that's all he did. You know, he had no other uh, reasons to uh, exist. But he was far from crazy. Now, you know, they were all crazy. We were all crazy. It's, you know, it's, it's a crazy life. You know, it's just some guys are more, um, you know, more out there than others. And, and, Joey, and Joey was out there. He, you know, he was, you know, fearless. He was... Uh, Aminated, and uh, he was uh, uh, he, he was loved by the, by his crew. I mean, if you were Joey, you were. I mean, you wasn't you only just with Joey because you were Joey Gallo because you know you're just there. You were Joey because you you were close with Joey, and Joey was you know very good to all his guys. I mean, if you when you saw Joey, you, you made sure you had money in your pocket. You made sure everything was good. And even as bad some days were, he made sure uh, that you were in good shape, as good shape you could be for the time. Uh, you know, Hollywood takes a guy, uh, you know, uh, sees some pictures. Some people write a few things. But if you ain't with nobody, if you're not with them, you don't know nothing. You know, so, you know, you just got to watch and see and read. But very few guys are alive that was with Joey now. Uh I'm warning him. Mm-hmm. And I, don't, I was only with Joey for the last year of his life because he was in jail for 10 years. You know, his murder obviously has been very much talked about. A lot of people may know that he was killed while he was having dinner with the actor Jerry Orbach. And uh, Jerry Orbach, he befriended him after playing a character that's based on him in the film that the gang, the, the gang that couldn't shoot straight, which was based on the Jimmy Breslin book. A lot of folks uh, might be familiar with the book or the motion picture. Obviously, that's a comedy, but based on your observation of the Gallo crew, was that an accurate, albeit lighthearted, depiction of the Gallo crew? No, I don't think it was good at. I don't think it was good at all. I mean, I don't think it was the whole thing was a joke at all. But it, it was it was meant lighthearted, you know. No, they didn't catch nobody good, you know, because they had a midget in the line in it, and they had gangsters in it. it, it they you think it's you know it reflects on us? Uh, no. But it was good for entertainment. But sure. No. But there was a lion, no, though. They, they did have a lion. They had, listen, these guys had families. They were comedic. They were funny. They were treacherous. You know, they did some bad things, you know, because that life does bad things. 
uh, I think nothing was funny about it. You know, when that when we were filming that, uh, uh, film, when we were filming that, uh, they came on the block. Jimmy, uh, um, a couple of the guys, the midget came on the block, talked to Mondo. Uh, first, they got yelled at, and then they started watching. And the guys on the block, like Mondo, the, the midget, and the guys started, you know, enjoying it because it became funny. But uh, and um, that's how I, when when uh, Joey got out of jail. It, he wanted to see who played him, and that's how he got friends with Je- Jerry Orbach. You know, you know, and he got close to Jerry Orbach and his wife, and that whole crowd of people at the time, you know, in Hollywood. But Jerry was wasn't there when when Joey got killed. Joe, no, he wasn't there when Joey got killed. Oh, he wasn't. Oh, my mistake. No. I always thought that no. that he was. I appreciate no. you clarifying. They were, they were there earlier at the Coper. I see. Coper. Got it. Got and, it. Got it. Then, what happened? My godfather, Bobby Bongiovanni, was one of the bodyguards that night, and Pete DeGree Stenopoulos was the two bodyguards. And what happened was uh, uh, Joey wanted to go home, was ready to go home. Pete, and Pete the Greek uh, told Joey Gallo that uh, Bobby uh, met some girl there. So Bobby says, uh, so uh, Joey told uh, Pete to tell Bobby to go home with the girl. So Pete the Greek told uh, Bobby, you can go. Bobby uh, Bon Giovanni, Bobby Dower went over to Joey and said, uh, you want me to leave? And you're going to go home? And he goes, yeah. He goes, you meet the, you met this boy anyway. Yeah, go do what you want. After, so Bobby winds up not going home with Joey. Uh, and um, uh, Joey gets hungry uh, on the way home. And, and they wind up stopping to a Chinese restaurant that was closed. They want to go to Chinese food. It uh, was closed. I think it was on Mott Street. And what happened was, I, I don't understand either because we used to go to that place. I went there many times, and it was always open. So I just don't understand why 4 o'clock in the morning was closed, but hmm. I, I don't remember, you know, details like that. But anyway, uh, what drives me nuts about the whole story is, too, is because after they go, they leave, the, play, the Chinese restaurant wasn't open. They had to, they had to pass the Lime House, which was a, which was a, uh, a Scongilly House. They had to pass it. So I understand why they passed a, a place that's open 24 hours. Go all the way around the block and go to Mulberry Street and and find out that and see a new place that's open by accident. I don't think it was by accident, you know. Pete the Greek says it was just by accident, but I, you know, knowing that route, that's not what you do. Why they went there, I don't know. Hmm. And what happens is that, you know, they go for dinner. You know, uh, uh, they get spotted. Uh, they make some phone calls and they come back and they and they and they kill and um and they come and kill Joey and shot um, Pete the Greek. But we know who shot Pete. We know who shot Joey and we know who shot Pete the Greek. That's why with the Irishman was such so far fetched and it was so much bullshit. Excuse my language. Is because we know who who shot him because the guy when 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 um oh, what's his name when Pete the Greek came out of out of the hospital, you know, blast asked him well, who shot my brother. And, and and shot you and, and Peter Greek leaned over and told the blast. He goes, it was uh, Sonny Pinto, which is uh, Carmine DiBiase. So we know three days later who shot, you know, who shot Joey because the guy who got shot in the butt turns around and told uh, Blast, you know, who shot him. So that whole story with the Francine and I don't know where they get this stuff, man, but you know, so far fetched. I wrote a book called The Hitman. Mafia hit I, I have the book. I, I, re- I read the book, Mafia Hitman, Carmine DiBiase, the wise yeah. guy who really yeah. killed uh, Joey G- Joey Gallo. It's a very good book, and uh, I definitely recommend it. But um, just uh, just to go back to the the Gallo crew, you, the the lion that's depicted in the in the motion picture was yeah. that real? Was there a lion at the the the, the headquarters of the social club? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Joey and Larry, there's some guy who owns a store in the city uh, of some kind of exotic animal store in the city. Came down, used to come down President Street now and then, and and um, had a monkey. So he brought a monkey down, and he, and, and Amanda would take care of it. Amanda, and we have the, the monkey kept on throwing shit around. And Joey got one time came in, and he got hit with shit. And he wanted to shoot the monkey, but they stopped him from killing the monkey. And they called a the guy down. I think it was George. The guy's name was. And they and they got the monkey out of there before they, before Joey killed him. <laughs> so what happened was about a month later, the same guy came up. He had a lion cub, and and Joey wanted the cub. So what happened was they went. Uh, Joey and Larry went to the city. They picked up the cub. They put it in the seat. Go back to Pleasant Street, and they gave it to Armando, and they told Armando to watch it. So Armando would uh, you know feed it, take care of it, clean up after it. 
and 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 at nighttime, <laughs> we used to put him in the because we had the club upstairs. We had three, four clubs on the block. You know, we had the Longshoremen's Club, we had the Blanchard Club, we had Warriors Club, we had the Jimmy Lefty's Club. So what happened at at at, at nighttime, we used to put him in the in the in the basement, or when a lot of people came, we used to put him in the basement. And he used to make a lot of noise down there. He used to have a little chain. And sometimes, you know, Joey used to, uh, guys or money or, or, you know, play with them. He really threatened them, but play with them and say you should throw, he would throw them down with the, with the lion. And the lion would run because they saw the gate open, you know, to the door, to the thing, and he used to run with the chain. And these guys used to get scared. But the, the, it was a small, it wasn't a lion. It was a cub. You know, once it, once it started getting big and Amanda couldn't um, handle it no more, we had to get rid of it. I I can imagine. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Uh, you, know, you, had a midget, you had a midget walking a, a lion that was getting kind of big, so we <laughs> had to get rid of it. Just to go back to the uh, Carmine DiBiase situation, a.k.a. Son, Sonny Pinto, and I want to encourage people to buy your book, Mafia Hitman. It's available on Amazon or wherever books are sold because you yeah. get into some detail about who Carmine DiBiase was and this crime in particular. But just give us the Reader's Digest version. Who was Carmine DiBiase with? And why did that person want to kill Joey Gallo? Well, Carmine was with the Columbos. He, he was with the Columbos when he when he when he um when he killed Joey. But he was uh he'd been around many years. He was he did a couple of murders way back in the forties fifties. Uh, he was on death row and he got uh, a new trial and he got out. So this guy was a bad dude. The guy was a killer. Uh, he's from Mulberry Street around there. He was a local guy, you know, uh, not very nice guy. He wasn't very well liked. He was a bad dude. What happened was is that uh, Joe Fish noticed that uh, Joey came in and the Joey and Pete the Greek pulled up. And Joe Fish, I can't think of his name, uh, Luparelli, I think his name is, uh, Joe Luparelli, was hanging outside Umberto's and wound up going into the club a couple blocks down. And they called up Joey Yak. And they told him that Joey, you know, there was an open uh, contract on, on Joe Gallo since uh, Joe Colombo got shot. So it was always an open contract. We knew this for mm. a year already. So what happened was uh, they go next door to the club, Joe Fish, and, and, and calls up Joe Yak. Joe, he tells him that tells Joe Yak, which is the acting boss of the Colombos at the time, uh, tells him that Joe, Joey Gallo's next door, and Joe Yak says, go get a gun and go kill him. So uh, to get uh, Sonny, Sonny Pinto, Sonny Pinto gets a couple guys, I think, and, and you know, they put a little kick together, cool together, and, and they go kill um, uh, Joey. Now, you know, uh, Joe uh, Luparelli never told uh, Yak that he was there with his uh, wife, uh, the baby, uh, the sister, uh-huh. and another, another thing. That was never told. Joey Yak never told that to, I mean, uh, Lou, um, Joey Fish never told that to Yakavelli. We know that. I mean, if he would have told that, maybe that would have happened that way. You know what I mean? But but Pinto came in shooting, so <clears throat> it is what it is. It is what it is indeed. All right, I know you mentioned you ha- your dad and uh, ma- your godfather were involved in the mafia life. Tell me about uh, your the beginnings of how you got involved with the mob. <clears throat> My father made me drive the minute I was old enough to start driving, which was like thirteen. I started driving everybody around. So he he didn't try to steer you away from mob not life as we hear about with some so many no. gangsters, second generation no. gangsters. No, not at all. I wasn't as soon as I was old enough. That he he saw the signs. You see the mannerisms. He, he picked up that I I, I picked up everything because I was I watched everything, and by thirteen I was six foot tall. I was one hundred fifty pounds. Uh, it was time to. I was very trustworthy. Everybody liked me. Everybody liked Frankie Boy. So what I wound up driving. So what what you do is I wound up driving my Godfather everywhere he wanted to go because you know Bobby Darrow uh, had no uh, had no license, so he had to go. So I had to pick him up and take him everywhere. Then I had to take my father to all the meetings, where for dinner, for drinking, 
you know, where it had to be done. So I did all the driving. And then from the driving, you know, you start going all the errands. And then from the, and then when you get a little older, you know, then, you know, you start making more, you know, you start, they give you a little leash so you can make more money. You get a, picking up a Shylock money or, or bookmaker money. And, and you just get trustworthy and that's, they send you to do errands. And that's how you grow. And then and that's your life because that's what you know. That's what you do. You know, you don't think of anything else. You know, uh, you know, I was ninth grade. I dropped out of school to, to be on Pleasure Street, to, you know, to flip quarters. That's what I thought I wanted to do. And, and that's all I knew to do. You know, and my uncle is uh, Joe Shapani, which is Joe Shep. I mean, so I had a lot of um, uh, big boys around me. You know, my father him, himself was very, very well respected. I mean, my father had uh, I mean, a ton of respect. You know, you mentioned Ricky's name, and no matter where you you went, you know, I mean, the doors would open. So it's hard not to, you know, fall into the into the trap. I can understand that. Uh, no, that makes sense. Uh, you, you, your mob life was it got started around the Colombo family. One of the things that I've always been interested in with the Colombos, maybe it just got more publicity, but it seems like whether we're talking about the 1980s, whether we're talking about the 90s, whether we're talking uh, the 70s with the uh, the feuding between uh, Joe Colombo and Joey Gallo, it seems like the Colombos, unlike the other five or six mafia families in the New York area, it seems like there's always these divisions. It seems like there's always at war. Is that accurate that there was more factionalism within the Colombo family than other mob families? And if so, why? Why was that the case? Well, the, the Colombos always had, um, well, Colombos, it was a Bofacci family. Bofacci, it started with the Bofacci family, you know, with Joe Bofacci being uh, a very cheap, very vicious, you know, uh, guy. So he wasn't very well liked, but a lot of people stay where the money is. And a lot of guys who weren't uh, were real gangsters or, or um, had you know other things that they wanted to do because he would hold you down, Joe Bafacci. They always try to break away. Now the Gallo crew, <clears throat> which is the first war in the sixties, was a whole crew of guys that didn't like Joe Bafacci. That would they came under Bafacci, you know, but. Uh, because Pavacci was the boss. I mean, they came under Frankie uh, Schatz, and they came with uh, Johnny Bad Bichato, who actually brought they, these, all these guys in. <clears throat> so what happens, they, they weren't no love for Joe Pavacci. They didn't grow up. Grow up. These guys didn't grow up with Pavacci, and they were, their, their passion was for this guy. They wound up being put there. So when you put somewhere, you know, it's different than you coming up and, 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 and liking someone and, and, and respecting someone and coming up through the ranks. So there was never no love lost there. So, it, it, you know, as soon as the they tried to, they had a chance, they, they made a break. You know, the Gallows made a break in 60 and went for three years of war, warring. Uh, and and the guys, you know, uh, you know, uh, still with Joey, because Joey and Larry were very, very um, uh, likable. You know, uh, Larry was very likable. And a lot of guys broke away. I mean, we had about 30, 40 guys that broke away. <clears throat> Originally, the whole crew guys that broke away and um, went with Larry and Joey. Uh, uh, a Carmine Persico was one of them. I mean, he originally he was uh, on the break. And then uh, he got swayed by uh, some senior guys to come back because uh, Joey Joe Pafacci was very strong and they were afraid that it would be outgunned, you know, and they had a ton of money. That it would just be a better move, like it or not, is to stay with Bafachi. And that's why he wound up, you know, uh, going against uh, Larry Gallo. It was very treacherous, that guy, uh, Carmine. So, and, and you know, that, that lasted three, four years. You know, Joey, Joey Gallo wound up in jail. Uh, Joe Bafachi winds up dying. Joe, Joe Colombo winds up being a, a boss. Joey Gallo never recognized him being a boss. So when he got out of jail, the first thing he, you know, did was rant and rave, you know, why is this, you know, guy, why you guys, Presidency crew, even listen to this guy? Mm -hmm. And he made a stink right away called, you know, he made a stink, sent, sent down Dirty Avenue to uh, Joe Colombo that he wanted a meeting. And, and, and you know, Joey sent a couple of guys down, I think he sent down Wacky Maliglia uh, and a, another guy came down to see Joey and Larry and them and, 
and Joey and and and, and I think, I think uh, Joey sent a thousand dollars or some stuff like that, and Joey laughed and chewed at the guy. He says, "Take it back and tell him to keep it." He goes, "We're, we're breaking away. We got nothing to do with him." And Joey the next day told everybody, "Do not go around any Columbos. Do not go any." Do not go to any social clubs. Do not do any business with them no more. And then we hit, hit the mattresses again. And that's the first time I hit the mattresses with them. That was 71. <clears throat> and then, um, you know, then Joey wanted, then Joey Colombo wanted to get him shot. And then the whole all, all broke up loose the, the whole year of 71. He ended up getting you shot? No, Joe Colombo wound up getting shot. Oh, Joe Colombo won. Got it. Okay. And, and, and that that just, you know, that whole year was just, you know, a really crazy year, you know, of, uh, you know, of, uh, you know, just doing things to uh, stay alive and to, you know, you know, keep your head above water because everybody was out gunning for everybody in, you know, 71. And, and then, then, like I said, the open contract on Joey Gallo and Joey wouldn't listen. I mean, I remember the day that Joey went. It was his birthday, so he was down President Street, and me and Gumbadil and a couple of the guys. I think Frankie Pajuto, Frankie Fariello was there, and and Joey pulled up, and we, you know we went over to Joey, give him a kiss hello, wish him happy birthday, and <clears throat> and uh, he speaks to his brother Albert, and Albert tells him, you know, where you going? And he goes, I'm going to the Copa tonight, and Joey and uh, Albert tells him, you know, you shouldn't go there, you, you know, there's open contract, we'll bring some extra guys with you. And Joey and Joey turns around. He goes, "I got Pete the Greek and I got Bobby." He goes, "I don't need nobody else." And and, and Blast told him, "No, you do. I think it's a good idea." He goes, "I think it's a good idea not to go at all." Number one. But if you're gonna go, bring another two guys with you. And Joey laughed and says, "I don't need two guys. I got these two guys." And he, and he also turned around and says, "Well, they, you know, these guys don't got the balls to do anything anyway." And that was his philosophy. And Blast just threw his hands up in the air and says, "Okay, go do what you want to go do." And that's how they were. And, uh, you know, he said goodbye to all, all of us, you know, and uh, we said, okay, so Joe, we see you tomorrow. He leaves, and then the history happens. You then, there was a point where you went from being associated with the Colombo family to the De Cavalcanti family, which is a much more of a Jersey-based family. Explain to folks how you do that. I would think it's not like uh, baseball where you get traded from the Mets to the Yankees. How did you make well, that uh, transition and why? Well, what happened was this. In, in 1976, the Gallos got released from the Colombos 100% because they went over to Chin Gigante because Albert and, and, and Punchy and uh, those guys were very friendly with uh, Chin. And uh, they, Chin went and sat down with, uh, uh, I think, I don't know who the acting boss at the, at the Columbus at the time was. And they he arranged for the whole crew to get released. And and the, and the Columbus were happy to release them because it was nothing but a pain in the in the butt anyway. Was, you know, no, they weren't listening. There was always an argument. They weren't coughing up no money. They were just you know acting as as an individual uh, a family anyway. So they they got released. So we wound up going with Chin in 1976, and we stood with Chin until 80, 82. What happened was we wound up getting a drug pinch, and in and in and in. And in, and in Chin's crew, you get you get a drug pinch, you're in trouble. So what happened was in '82 or '84 we were fighting this. To '84 we were fighting this drug pinch, and what happened was uh, Blast comes up and sits with the Chin and gets us released instead of getting killed. If we were, you know, if we if we were lost this case, released so from the Columbos. From, no, we got released in '76 from the Columbos. Now we were Chin. We were with the Genovese gotcha, family. Gotcha. 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 family. So what happens? We wound up getting released from the Genovese family instead of getting killed, because Blast turned around and told uh, um, uh, Chin that that we were you know, not officially with them. That you know uh, that he was just dealing with Ricky, and that he had the he had the right to do what he wanted, not to, to uh, the right to do what he wanted. So Chin turned around and said, "Okay." He goes, "But he can't be here if he's going to do that thing." So we get called down to we get called to Manhattan, Mulberry Street, and we get released. So in '94 we get released. So we're we're released now. You know, every day goes on. You do what you have to do anyway. All the business is going. All the whatever we were doing, doing anyway. And um, my father's good friends with uh, Jimmy Rotunda. Jimmy Rotunda was a uh, uh, longshoreman delegate for the Longshoreman Union, 
and he was with the Jersey crew, with Sammy the Plumber. So what happens is he winds up getting killed. And my father's good friends with him, and he winds up killed. They wind up straightening his son, uh, uh, Jimmy Rotunda's son out, uh, making him in the in in family. Mm-hmm. Made him a made man in the family. And But he just got out of college. He was coming out of college. He wasn't a street guy. So what happened was this guy named Louis Teresi and uh, and uh, Rudy uh, Ferroni came over to my father. I think we had a bar on Mill Avenue. And they come in because they were good friends. And they said, Ricky, can you do us a favor? He goes, can you school Anthony? And my father says, no problem, because he was good friends with his father. And we wound up with Anthony Rotunda with the, with the Jersey crew with the Sammy, with Sammy the Plumber. And uh, we stood there from, uh, I would say it was like 87, 88, to about uh, 99, because in 1999, that whole family took a pinch, and everybody got arrested, and everybody who most of the guys turned rats. Everybody else went who who went to witness protection program, who got subpoenaed, mm. who did this or that, and that whole that whole that whole family broke up. But we were a Brooklyn crew of a as a of a Jersey family. The, the De Cavalcantes are supposedly the basis for the TV show The Sopranos. I'm sure you've seen The Sopranos. Did you? What did this show get right? What did they get wrong about the De Cavalcantes? Well, they wanted the money. They wanted the money. They had a, they had a guy from there that gave uh, David Chance, I think, a chance. Chase. All the information. This guy didn't dream this stuff up. This guy was very close to stuff. You know, a lot of stuff with there. So he had somebody, that, what we heard, Anthony told me a while ago with Thunder, that they had somebody that was around the, uh, that family for many years, and he was the one that was feeding David Chance all the stories, how things were run, you know, how things broke up, or who was mad at who, and all that stuff. So David Chance. Chase. Uh, David had, Chase. Had, Chase, sorry. Had a insider that gave them all the information, stuff like that. They were on the money. They were very good at what they did. They, they took a lot of, a lot of scenarios and, and that was true that happened. And uh, I mean, they, they changed some names, you know, and stuff sure. like that, but, but it definitely a lot of scenarios that happened. They were really good at what they did. Why did you never get straightened out? It seems like you have a great mafia pedigree. It seems like you uh, have a, a street smart way about you. It sounds like you were poised to earn a lot of money. How come you never got straightened out? Well, in in, in the seventies, they never with the Columbus. They weren't. They were going to straighten none of us out because we were renegade crew. So no one's getting straightened. No one got straightened out when we were with the Gallows. The only people who were straightened out in the Gallows was Albert. I was um was Joey and Larry Gallo. And they got straightened out in 1957 after the Albert Anastasia hit. Since then, no one in that crew got, no one in, in that crew got, got straightened out. So you could never, you were never going to get straightened out if you were Joey and Larry. It, it just wasn't going to happen. Uh, Joey, uh, 1971, he made all of us, but it wasn't official because, you know, that's not, that's not how it works. But Joey saying he's the boss, you know, he's his family, and he made a, a dozen guys. But it's not official, so you're not made in the eyes of of, of this whole commission thing. So you weren't, you weren't going to get made through the Columbus at the time. When we went over to uh, Chin, um, there was the books were opening, and 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 what happened was that they only can make a few guys at a time, and they wound up making Albert. And they wanted to make him punchy, Frankie Liano, and another two guys. Uh, and my father was my father was warning them, but my father didn't want to be straightened out. He says, if I'm straightened out, he says to me, then I, then I'm I'm obligated to them, and then they can kill me. He goes this way, I'm not obligated to nobody. You know, I don't need it because Ricky's Ricky. He goes, we're earning, we don't we don't need it. He wasn't that type of guy. He was very low key, my father. He said, I don't need that thing. I'm who I am already. So. We didn't. A couple other guys got it, and then we wound up leaving there, and then we wound up in Jersey. So when they opened the books in Jersey, then we got put up again. I, I was supposed to get straightened out in, in uh, 1999 Christmas. My father grabbed me uh, a week, before, two weeks before that, and said that uh, we're gonna get. I was gonna get straightened out with him and, and the two other friends. 
And he says to me, he goes, you sure you want it? And I turn around and I says, well, what the hell? That's what we hear all this time for. And uh, he goes, okay. He says, but I got to tell you one thing. He goes, he goes, if you, and it's not exact words he said, but I can I'm be nice. If you mess up, he goes, I'm the one that's going to kill you. He leaned over, grabbed my hand. Your own father said that to you. Oh, yeah. He says, I'm the one that's going to kill you if you mess up. And I said, no problem. He goes, you still want it? I said, well, that's what we're here for. And he, and he came over, he kissed me, and we had uh, we drank all night and left. But um, uh, uh, two weeks after that, everybody got pinched. So I lucked out. God's wow. always been with me, man. Because wow. two weeks after that, they picked up Anthony, uh, Anthony Matanda, and Anthony Capo, and Vinnie Palermo, and that whole, that, whole, that whole regime got picked up. And a year later, everybody flipped from the boss down to Anthony and what happens? We all get picked up. We all get subpoenaed, and 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 um, wind up walking away because how we walked away is that uh, the Jersey crew, the guys, the Jersey boss, and all that, they all flipped. Whoever was left over here didn't even know who we were in Brooklyn because we were Brooklyn crew. Number two, there were so many guys flipping, they were afraid to go speak to anybody to ask them any questions because they didn't want to involve themselves in anything because of all the indictments going down it. When our guy, which is Anthony Rotunda, they took him out of circulation, we knew that he was done. He was he was done. So we turned around and said, "Okay, we we'll wait for the Lord to come." What happens? The Lord came within the last, you know, six seven months. We all get pinched, and uh, after that, uh, it was uh, nobody gave us up on anything really bad. It was all crap stuff that we 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 wound up wiggling way out of. And we, it was just, it was 2020, uh, 2001, and we looked at each other, and we said, what are we going to do? There's no one, you know, that, that thing in Jersey's over with. We have been out in New York for 15 years already. Uh, he goes, let's go to Florida. And we, went, and we, we packed up and we went to Florida. Sounds like that was the smart move. A lot a lot of folks may remember the name Al Goldstein. He was kind of a New York area personality for a while. He was a regular on uh, other radio shows like the Howard Stern Show. And a lot of people have credited him with kind of normalizing hardcore pornography in the United States. He had Screw Magazine, and we're going to talk about Mob Candy Magazine in a, in a minute. But what was uh, the mob's involvement with Screw Magazine, and what was your involvement? if any, with Al Goldstein? Well, we were the sole distributors from day one to to, to closed. Everything that was, every school magazine went to us. I was the main distributor of school magazine from 1969 to 2004 when it closed. That's when we made all our money. The, the, we were very close with Goldstein. Goldstein was a nut. He was very <laughs> arrogant. He was very political. He was a pioneer fighting the law with the, with the, with, you know, with the porno. If it wasn't for him, nobody would be doing anything today because he, he spent tons of money fighting the law with, you know, with that, uh, you know, with the porno laws. Uh, but he was also eccentric. Uh, but we made a lot of money uh, with him. He turned over the reins to us as far as our distributor, to being his distributor. And we were there for 31 years or 32 years until uh, Julie. Woody Giuliani, you know, uh, mm-hmm. showed all the bookstores in Manhattan, and that's why we wanted to close it. But uh, we had it since uh, – what's the name? Goldstein uh, put a couple on out himself, a couple of issues on himself. He had a distributor, and they, were, they weren't putting it out right. They were afraid because uh, of getting arrested because of the, porn, with the nakedness at the time and all that stuff. So my godfather, Bobby Darrow, and, and Pete the Greek, which were partners at the time – Knew the other guy that was doing the, the um, distributing, so they went over to him and they said, "Well, we're going to take it." And there was an argument going on, and a couple of guys got hit, a couple of trucks got broken, blah blah blah, and we wound up uh, taking uh, Bobby and and, and um, Peter Greek wound up getting uh, Goldstein to give them the paper, and then Goldstein came over to us and we made a handshake deal to be the distributor, and then we went out from day one, and we just flooded the market with, with, with School Magazine. We went to everybody, and whoever didn't want to take it, 
we used to tell them we're going to have no newsstand in the morning because it was it, those days they had a lot of newsstands in Manhattan, you know, uh, and they were run by uh, the mostly Jewish guys had had these newsstands, and we would tell them. You don't take the paper, you're not gonna have a newsstand left. And that's how it used to that's how it worked. And they said, Okay, we'll try it. And they, within a month they were begging us. They used to call us like, Can you drop another load off? Because it was sold it sold so well. Yeah. It, it went from shredding them until they were our best friends. That's very because, funny. Yeah, sure, because it you know, it, it was selling a hundred thousand a week at one at, at one point. It was really, really uh, uh, it was um, school was uh, was uh, the Bible of sex at, at one point. I mean, it lasted, you know, like I, like I said, until two thousand and four, uh, and it was still selling decent at the time. Nothing like that, but but uh, that's funny. Another uh, thing that the internet has changed. You, you that's know, exactly what it was. The internet just just this you know just put you out of business, man. Times change and stuff like that. But I've had we I did, I was thirty one years working for that for uh, wow, yeah. I and that's how I started. Being in the distributing business since I was young, you know, with the girls, I learned, I sat down and, you know, being a, a hulam saying, you know, we're, we're doing all the work, we're giving him the money, we're getting a piece, why don't we do our own paper? Right. <laughs> well, know, I, 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 I want to ask you yeah. about Mob Candy in just a bit, but you alluded to the fact that a lot of your cohorts ended up getting arrested and you kind of lucked out and that you didn't, and that that was sort of a new chapter of your life. Was right. the this was leaving mob life a concerted decision that you made uh, when you said, I don't want to do this anymore, or was it a result of circumstances, the people that you were working with and involved with, them all getting arrested, and there wasn't sort of a lot of pressure for you to continue doing that? Tell me how your involvement with the mafia came to an end. Well, yes, it, 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 it wasn't a decision we walked away and said we wanted to be uh, holy rollers. What happened was everybody around you is gone. Everything starts to, you know, dwindle down. You know, uh, you lose connections here, you lose connections there. People don't come to you. Uh, you know, we had a legitimate business all, all the while. So it just happens that everything starts dying out around you because you, there's, everybody's gone, you know. Mm -hmm. That whole Jersey thing, at that time we were with that Jersey thing, Everybody was gone. That whole crew was uh, the, from the boss down was gone. You know that was really wrecked at one point. And uh, so, what do you do? Uh, we still had friends at other places that you kept on, you know, doing something with. But you know, uh, you're getting older, you got legitimate things, uh, uh, and you just, uh, you just, you know, um, it's not like a decision. You just, you're just like. Um, you do just less of it because you're doing something else, you know? You know, it's not that you sit down and go, I don't want to be a gangster no more. You know, <laughs> you know or I don't want to sell drugs. You know I mean? Or I don't want to, you know, make uh, money and, and, and Shylock and or gambling games or I want to 300 girlfriends. No, you don't do that. It just, it just, it uh, just happens. slips away. And, and, and uh, we were lucky because we had legitimate business. So we always had, you know, something to fall on, you know, and, and then, then you meet other people. We were down in Miami meeting other people. We, we got into a, a different business with, with steel, you know, with tracks and stuff like that and buildings and stuff. And, and that, that took your time up. And so, and, and the most of, and, and don't forget, now we're getting older. Most of the guys that we were with from the seventies are, old in jail or dead so mm -hmm. that whole they're all dead you know what i mean you know chin and that crew's all dead i mean and now you're in a jersey crew that we didn't even know them well you know except the you know jersey guys we didn't know well you know except our crew in brooklyn and uh that's all gone you know uh, and most of the people we knew at that point were either in jail dead uh, yeah, on a witness, witness protection program. So it was just, it just, just happened. It wasn't like a, a you know, a decision. I, I alluded to the fact that you never became a cooperator. You never became a rat. Uh, I'm no. curious because you're not in prison right now. Are there a lot of folks that think that you might have ratted somewhere along the line? And uh, did the did the authorities ever reach out to you about maybe becoming an informant in a case? Everybody in this world knows that I that I never spoke to a cop in my life, ex, ex, you know, except you know 
your name, rank, your serial number. Sure. Uh, they know. If Let me tell you something. If I spoke to the law and anything, in today's world, with this podcast and all these guys, they, they, they could sniff anything out. Trust me. You couldn't hide it if you if you if you wanted to. You know, uh, no, okay. no, no, no. I, I was just going to say one of the things that uh, you know I covered the four trials of John Gotti Jr. and one of the aspects of the federal government's case against him that I found so silly, quite frankly, is their contention that you can never leave the mob. And they ended up having testimony, even from people that were never even straightened out, like John A. Light saying, no, there was only one way in and one way out. And I'm watching this thinking, you mean to tell me if you decide that you want to stop committing crimes and you're going to leave a lot of money on the table for other people to grab instead, the mob's going to come back and and uh, and and force you to continue committing crimes. I thought it was laughable, and then clearly so did the jury. Um, yeah. But just so a lot of people think I'm naive when I describe this, you can walk away from mob life. Sure, but you get a lot of guys get put on the, on the shelf. I mean, Kimmy, they, they, a lot of guys get kicked out. A lot of guys have gotten a shelf. The meaning that you know certain reasons they get hot or they do something wrong and they get and they get their button button pulled away. Sure. And they get they get shelved. It's been common for years, man. People getting shelved, and some high ranking guys got shelved. A lot of guys get chased. Uh, you know, I mean, you're only as scary if you got. Listen, if you if you if you're in a if you got if you did some murders and you, and you got something over someone's head, then it's a little you know it's a little shaky to walk because you're always a, a liability. You know what I mean? Then, then you ain't walking away that easy. But if it's you, if you're a Shylock, you're a bookmaker, you're a hustler, you're a drug dealer, and you're bringing the money into the thing, you want to go do what you want. I mean, you can get it released. There's a lot of things to do. You can turn it over to them. Uh, and, and then if you're, you know, and if you're punk, you know, you know, then they'll abuse you. But if you're a stand-up guy and, and you're and you're with the right guy. You're not with a, a, a bad guy, you know, as far as a boss, a guy like, you know, a guy like a bicycle was not, not nice. He would, you know, he wants yours, his, and the next guy's too. And then you don't worry about it. But if you're with reg- of good people, which is some decent good people in this crazy world, in this crooked life, it's very easy to, to do things, but you got some murders under your belt. It's very hard. Yeah, I can understand that. How do you view people who choose to cooperate in exchange for getting essentially a get out of jail free card? Okay, you know, there's number one. I, I you never like that. You know, I, I, it's not something you like. It's not something you say okay to. But you know, there's different kind of snitches. You know, no one ever talks about that. You know, there's guys that turn around and. Uh, with somebody, a may guy, not may guy, or just an associate, something like that, they go and sell drugs on their own and get and get arrested. And they turn around to the cops and say, well, I'm with, um, right. you know, Sonny Francisci, uh, and I can give you him, and I'll wire up, and that's a rat. That's a rat that's bad. That's a bad snitch rat. And then you've got others. Then you've got other stories. Then you've got a guy like, uh, use Anthony Rotunda. Anthony Rotunda, sitting in jail, in this life, sitting in jail, waiting for the case to happen, going to fight the case. And his boss and the guy who is boss of the family, Vinny Palermo, and the underboss and two cop boats and the guy that trained, made him all flip. Right. Now he's sitting there and got to do life in jail. Right, right. Now, now you turn around, you got to think this now. You got to think that and this is the word of mirth is very important in the, in the, in the, if you're not in this, in this world, in, in this life. But outside is like that word. But, when you're facing life in prison and the guy who brought you in right. and the guy, and your boss flips already, makes a deal to go uh, to keep his money in some island and you're sitting there in jail, then it's going to do life in prison. Think about it now. Think about it. So and, and a lot of these guys, you know, happened to them, not all of them, but a lot of guys, it happened to them and they got stuck. So, you know, I mean, uh, if I'm mistaken, Larry Mazza got stuck that way. If I'm mistaken, um, I know Anthony got stuck that way. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know <clears throat> too much about other guys. but uh, I'd say that is, that, is, that. that is the most thorough and nuanced analysis 
of uh, of cooperating that I've ever heard because I think so often uh, guys that are in the life or were in the life they tend to paint with a broad brush and same thing with uh, law enforcement officials or people that choose to become cooperators and uh, it's such an important distinction that you make that there are different levels of uh, and you know what the thing that I've always viewed people differently for is some people lie and others don't and so I, I would give a lot less credit credibility to someone that goes on the witness stand and makes up things that are easily uh, checked and you can see that they're not true. But that's so thorough. It's right on the money. It's true, but it's true. But and then other guys don't get their deals. You, you, you know, John Gotti, they say, you know, I, no disrespect to John Gotti, but uh, he can get no deals. So right. they say, well, he's put in jail. He's a stand-up guy. He didn't write nobody out. There's nobody <laughs> right out. He didn't get a deal. <laughs> right. Who were they? What were they offering him? Yeah. yeah some guys exactly. don't get deals. Jim, yeah. Jim don't get a deal. You know, they say he's stand-up. He, you know, no, no, they are. I'm not saying they wouldn't do that. <laughs> right. Probably, but, 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 think of the, but think of this. But some guys don't get the chance either because sure. they're the ones they want. And that, that's, that's all that counts. And I hear a lot of guys say, well, guys like John and guys like this guy and guys like Sonny. And, and I go, you're right. They probably would have stood in jail for life on their, on their own merits, you know what I mean? Because they wanted to go. They were real tough guys. And they were real tough guys. I said, but they didn't get a deal. So you can't even question that. Yeah, it's, it's such a great, uh, that's such a great analysis. Tell me about Mob Candy Magazine. Uh, what's this magazine all about? How can people get it? What inspired you to uh, launch this magazine? Okay, I, I, in 2008, I started this magazine. I did like one a year for the last 10 years. You know what I mean? Uh, and I stopped for a couple of years during the COVID. It's a, it's a magazine about the uh, mobster life. It's, you know, you got candy as the girls and there's gangster stories and there's, you know, places to go and, um, uh, you know, all kinds of mobster stuff, like, you know, stories about different guys. About it. that's you know like Andy Mush passed away, and we did a story about Andy Mush. We we just did a story about the um, how now the mafia is stripping you down when they straighten you out because they're afraid you're wired. We do stories like that, stories about neighborhoods, how the podcast is big now, and we got a lot of hot girls in it, and it was it was doing well. It, it, it sold well. I was just I just got busy doing the books because I I wanted to get a four or five book deal. With yeah, the, that's great. Kenston, so I, I put the book on, I put the magazine on hold, and then COVID came the last few years, so I didn't do nothing anyway. And this, and then this year, the, my son-in-law says, "Why don't you put another book out again?" And uh, I had a lot of time on my hands, so I turned around and you know I do all the work myself, I learned how to do everything myself. So I sat down and just dreamed this whole thing up, and, and we put one out this month. So how can people get it if they're interested in checking out Mob Candy Magazine? MobCandyMag.com. That's the best place to get it. Uh, we got them all. Uh, I used to be distributed by Barnes and Noble, but I don't like going with them because you, they you they you print it, you give it to them. If it don't sell in, in four weeks, they throw in the garbage. <laughs> the so, mobcandymag.com. Yeah. There are right, going to so, be some people that say, and I get accused of this for this podcast, but there are going to be uh, some people that say what what you do, having a bunch of cute girls on the cover of a magazine, having some uh, tough guy stories in there, that there's a danger that that could be glorifying mob life and leading uh, some people to try to emulate that kind of behavior. What do you say to those folks who say that, um, you know, that you're glamorizing a lifestyle that shouldn't be glamorized? What would I say? <laughs> I would say, too bad. This is what I do. I really don't care. Hollywood has done it. When you get them to stop, and now stop. <laughs> but uh, I'm personally, I don't, I don't, I don't really care what anybody thinks. You know, I'm, I'm not in a position that I have to, you know, I get fired or I get in trouble. Like I can do what I want. You know what I mean? And people's opinion don't really bother me anymore because. After what I did in my life, if they if I had to tell the truth, they wouldn't be talking to me anyway. What is what is the mob like today? What kind of influence, as far as you're aware, does the mob have today? Well, you know, it lost a lot of power. You got to be under. Listen, my days we used to get dressed up. I we had they were out of tailor uh, in in uh, Alfred City M and M tailors, and we used to get tail. We used to get suits made up, and we made sure that we wore tailor made suits big diamonds 
and, and dressed up and matching socks and shoes and alligator shoes because we flaunted it. We went out, and you wanted everybody to know who you are and who you were with. That's what we did. It was a crazy time, you know. Uh, we drank like fools. And and and, and, we're, and, we're, and stupid, and we were stupid half the times. We did stupid things, but we were very flamboyant. Uh, today, they don't got that. Everything's under under you know under the radar. They don't have what we had. It's a whole different world. We did bad things, and we were able to enjoy it and to flaunt it. They they do bad things today, and, and they got to hide under the couch so no the, the you know the, the camera for miles away don't see them or, or or there's you know a rat or or or, or a um or, you know a camera or a bug. We none of that stuff. You know we didn't have none of that stuff. We flaunted it. As long as you, get, you as long as you didn't get caught the gun in your hand those days, you were good. You beat it. You know, today they change the laws on you. They, 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 it's different now. So these guys, you know, they, 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 they have no mentors. They didn't grow up with anybody that, you know, I, I sat with Frank Costello. I sat with uh, uh, Carlo Cambino for lunch, uh, for, for dinners. I, I was with, uh, what do you call it, Maya Lansky in, 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 um, in um, Florida doing a pot deal. So, you know, you sit with these guys, it's a different, uh, they're mentors and they're different styles or they they, they know they, they made this game so uh, they, and they teach you well but who's teaching them now i don't, mm. I don't know teaching, everybody's dead yeah and whoever <laughs> else is they're laying low and when they're not laying low that's why they're on tv right. and that's why they're pinched because they're on phones they're putting things on buses they're they're making other phone calls uh they're getting caught on phones that, that we didn't spoke for they're supposed to speak for the last 40 years and they're still getting rest on their phones and, 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 you know, and there's another rat here, and another guy there. So they can't do nothing. Everybody's, you know, low, low, low. So they don't, they can't even flaunt what they got. Yeah, no, that's a, <laughs> that's a great, a, a great analysis of and the. Plus, don't forget, they lost the Sherlock and they right. lost the bookmaking because. The it's law, all legal. The, it's all legal. So you lose that a lot. So now what if, what they force you to do now? If you if you got some money, you know, it's legit. You have a restaurant, you have um, some businesses, whatever it is. But that's a, that's a high echelon guys, street guys. What do they got to do? You know how they got to make money? You got to sell drugs. Right, right. Uh, now, you're not selling drugs, you ain't doing shit. Yeah. You're not doing nothing. Yeah. What uh, are you doing? Yeah, no, it's a podcast. You could you could uh, definitely use profanity. Oh. Hey, uh, are, are there any, um, you've clearly done a lot in, in the world of the mob. You've uh, probably, you, you've been involved in violence. You've been involved in, uh, you know, in breaking various laws over the years. Do you have any regrets about anything that you did when you were involved in that life? To tell you the truth, no, I don't. I really don't. I, 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 one or two regrets would be is that I should, should have been a little less loyal to certain people, should have been a little smarter. You know what I mean? Instead of being uh, as loyal as I was, because people, I learned later on how you get their backstabbers and how you're only as good as you are today. You know what I mean? Uh, that, but as a bad thing, most of the bad things we did, they deserved it. You know what I mean? Nine out of ten times, you did something because they deserved it, or they were going to do it to you. You know what I mean? Uh, you play this game, you got, it, there's consequences. You know what I mean? I mean, it's not right as far as, you know, but in a, in a crazy world, you can't be sensible. So you want to make sense as something that's crazy. You can't. If you're living in, in a sane asylum, you do, you, you're, you're insane. And that's what you do. You do crazy things. So, uh, you know, it's an eye for an eye, two for two. You know? No, I don't. No, I, I really don't. You know, I sleep good at night. You know, you know maybe the only thing I do sometimes, I go, I, I, you know, I think I was stupid about it, is that maybe a couple, nights, a couple of times I drank too much. Mm-hmm. And I could have, you know, I broke somebody's head open that I could have passed up. But I look at that now as just being older, and 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 we get too laid back now, you know, because that guy could have hit me just first. Sure. You know what I mean? So now you're trying to money, you know, Monday morning quarterback this shit now. In that world, you can't. You can't at the time, you know. Uh, so no, I really don't. No, yeah. I, I really don't. You know, I'm, I regret my father passed away 12 years ago. I wish he was still with me. I was with him all my life. You know, I really miss him. I, I miss his, his, you know, you know, him teaching 
uh, even if it's not something good to teach, you know, but it's our teaching. It's the way I grew up. I miss him a lot. But, let, uh, let, last question, Frank, and this is the question I ask everybody that has some familiar, familiarity with mob life. Of all the mafia movies uh, from any era, if you had to pick, which would you say is the most realistic? Two of them. Mean Streets to me was the most authentic street movie there was because that's how they were. Really street. You know, it wasn't as fancy. Uh, uh, and, and Goodfellas was very good. You know, mean Streets. Very good. And Goodfellas. Uh, mean Streets was unbelievable to me. Uh, Frank DiMatteo, it is great talking to you. I encourage everybody to uh, check out uh, all your books. They could search your name on uh, Amazon.com. And if they're interested in checking out uh, Mob Candy Magazine, they can go to MobCandyMag.com. There's some great videos on there. There's some great stories on there. Everything from restaurant reviews to wise guy stories is on there. It's uh, it's, a, it's an interesting magazine, and it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. I think it's fun anyway. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Frank. Appreciate it. And uh, for the rest of you, if someone sent you this podcast, please be so good as to pay it forward and send it to someone else. Be sure to subscribe. You can search The Racket Report on iTunes or any podcast platform. Until the next time we meet in cyberspace, I'll see you on the radio.